This episode of Nomi Athlete Radio is brought to you by Trade Coffee. Get fresh, roasted, and ethically sourced beans from America's best independent roasters. And Trade Coffee ships free to you as often as you like, whole or ground. Right now, Trade Coffee is offering new subscribers a total of $30 off your first order, plus free shipping when you go to drinktrade.com slash nomeat. This episode is also brought to you by our brand new Omega Complex. With over 900 milligrams of plant-based DHA, EPA, ALA, and SDA omega-3 fatty acids, Omega Complex is your new solution for optimal omega health. Save 20% when you order today at nomeatathlete.com slash omega-complex. Hi, this is Hope. This is Kareem. Hi, this is Katie from Washington, D.C., and you're listening to No Meat Athlete Radio. Matt, I'm uh, I'm gearing up for my my annual, maybe maybe biannual now, uh, uh, round of golf tomorrow. Taking the afternoon off. You're not going to see me on a team call. Wow, that, has that been authorized? <laughs> it has. It, it obviously hasn't gone all the way up the chain, but uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Good. I'm glad to hear that. It's always always fun to play a little golf. Well, it's not always fun. It's always fun to be thinking about playing golf when you actually get out there. It could go either way. <laughs> that is a good thing, and uh, yeah, it's I don't know how hot it is in Asheville, but it's been really hot in Charlotte this week, like yeah. 95 degrees. Yeah, it's warm. Days. It's warm, but uh, yeah, I don't know. It's, so it should be fun. This, this must not be your uh, your scramble tournament that you do no, every year. No, no, no. Uh, this is this is with some friends. Okay, and, uh, and so but not not disc golf, the real ball golf. <laughs> Michael said real golf too. It's not real. Both are real golf. Well, They're just different types of golf. There's ball golf and there's disc golf. <laughs> I don't think so. so this is ball golf. Okay. <laughs> I, I'm not going to give you that one. <laughs> you have a derivative sport named named disc golf. And there's an original golf that it needs no adjective. Yeah. Well, this is this is golf. This is ball golf, and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm I'm very much looking forward to it. Every time I play golf, I think about you because I think about how uh, you play that in that annual tournament and how much like practice and stuff you do <laughs> leading up to that. And, yeah. uh, <laughs> and, and then you know, then I, I got out clubs. the clubs yesterday. I, I took a few like swings in the yard just to you know get a feel for it, but uh, <laughs> definitely haven't been to a range or anything. Yeah. Well, I I'm I have thought a little bit about my annual trip coming up, uh, and I have this like bad sense of just how badly i played last year and then i always remember after i get down about it that uh that i didn't have my clubs i left them at the driving range on the way to the, to the <laughs> tournament yeah that's right that's <laughs> and right. realized it three hours into the trip <laughs> i forgot about that <laughs> yeah. that's such a good story <laughs> yeah so i used somebody else's clubs who brought them and it was it was not a good not my best showing <laughs> oh good golf golf is good good fun good times summer weather summer weather yep summertime uh, the other, the other big uh, sporting thing is, um, our we have a new summer nanny uh, to help out. Well, mm-hmm. Katie and I work, and um, and she uh, is working for Asheville's. Is it professional, semi-pro? I don't know. I mean, don't even know like what they are, but like they're kind of highest-ranking soccer league. Yeah, it's called USL, um, which is like so under the MLS, which is like the pro- main, you know, biggest pro league. There's uh-huh. this USL thing, which is uh, the way they run it is is the way I think soccer should be done, where they have all different like levels of it. I think there's USL Championship and there's USL one, two, three, which is like what the Premier League does in England. And if you finish in the bottom three in your mm. league, you'll go down you to go the down. next one the next yeah. year. And likewise, if you finish in the top three, you go up. Uh, 
which to me is like how soccer should be. It's just it's just what it just makes it so cool. So like I think Asheville City, I think they moved up this past year, maybe to USL two. Uh, I'm not sure, but now I believe they're playing a, a level higher than they were, which is which is awesome and good for them because yeah, yeah, they've, yeah. they've had they always get great attendance. Uh, I don't know, I don't know what you call that. I think I'm sure those people, those players get paid, uh, but I don't know what I don't really know the difference between semi-pro and pro. Do you? What's what is the difference? Uh, that's a great question. If yeah. you're a professional, if you're a pro, you're a pro, right? If if, yeah, right. If you're check, paid, you're pro. Yeah, I would imagine. So. Maybe maybe pros who can't uh, who don't earn enough to do it as their only job as their full time. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. yeah. So Asheville City is they're playing Tormenta two, which is big. I mean, a new but well known club. I think um, uh-huh. they're in USL two. Okay, which is two levels down from from USL Championship. Well, I think we're going to go to our first match uh, next week. Good. Are they back at Memorial Stadium now? They are back at Memorial Stadium. That's yeah. good. Yeah, I went to I went to the other place and it was not as good, but uh, that you'll you'll enjoy that. You're bringing both girls. Yep. Well, Ooh. probably just the oldest. Probably just Eliza. Okay. I don't know. Maybe 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 we'll do. Maybe we'll go as a family. The idea was just for uh, me and Eliza, but we'll see. Oh. Okay. Yeah. Well, uh, it's fun. Bring it. Bring hats and sunglasses because you stare into the sun if you sit where most people sit. Okay. Good it's advice. Like, That's good. It's, it's an unfortunate kind of setup how like the vast majority of seats face directly into the setting sun, but uh, <laughs> otherwise it's awesome. Like it's it's such a small little venue and it gets packed. At least when I used to go, it would get packed. Mm-hmm. Um, and good beer, just good times. All I'm, right. I'm excited for you. Um, so today we have an interview. Uh, interview hosted by Matt Tolman and CEO of Compliment, co-founder of Compliment. And um, uh, it's about hydration. It's with Meredith Cass, the CEO of Nix of Nix Biosensor, who uh, one, uh, is is a company that measures hydration. It's like a hydration sensor. Yeah, first biosensing wearable that analyzes sweat and prescribes a personal hydration strategy in real time. That is pretty cool. I didn't know that sort of thing existed. Yeah, uh, but yes, I've been I've thought more about hydration than I ever have recently because I think I told talked about this in an episode. Um, I read this book by Kelly Starrett called Ready to Run. And uh, he, one of his like 12 checkpoint sort of things in that book is a focus on hydration. And he talks about the work of uh, Stacey Sims, PhD. And her big thing is that if you're just drinking water by itself, you're not actually getting hydrated. Um, a lot of people apparently will, will, athletic people will keep drinking water all day because they'll feel thirsty all day. Their urine is clear. So the signs of being not dehydrated but they continue to be thirsty uh and it turns out this is her i don't know if it's her research or what but she says if you're not taking electrolytes in you're not going to be absorbing nearly the amount of water you should so if it's if it's meal time then having some salt is good um then you're fine but if it's not meal time put some put some electrolytes in the water which is a new thing to me haven't been doing that until right. recently yeah you know I, I you know i kind of think of it as like a as like the whole food approach you know just like whatever pure you know <laughs> things you can eat I mean, I know that like electrolytes are pure too, but like when I think about hydration, I think, uh, you know, water. And so for a long time when I was running for many years, you know, I would, I would shy away from any sort of uh, sports drink and just focus on, on water. And that shifted over, over time in part because I wanted to like drink calories and stuff like that. But, but really those electrolytes are just as key for getting that hydration as, as the water itself. Yeah. um, There were some people in the fruitarian community who, 
you know, they already have some sort of extreme ideas, but the most extreme of them didn't even drink water. They thought you should only eat fruit, not drink water by itself. <laughs> uh, and, and it, you know, this sort of, these ideas about, you know, that water doesn't do you that much good when it doesn't come with electrolytes, um, kind of makes sense. Like, I think, I mean, sorry, this goes along with those ideas, right? That, that the fruit is containing electrolytes and things that are going to help you absorb that water. Um, and the other thing, like, like you mentioned, this sort of putting this in the whole foods context, I think probably this, I mean, I, I feel silly saying this almost because certainly our clean water is a really good, great thing, but perhaps our water nowadays with many things removed from it is not the same as drinking water out of the local river when it was safe to do so, or if not that it probably ever was completely safe, but, um, when that, when that was more natural. Yeah, you probably got like some minerals and stuff. From exactly. The, exactly. Yeah. And I, I think our, our kind of like. I, I don't know what I'm talking about, but our, our process, city water, whatever, well water. I'm, uh-huh. Obviously, there are electrolytes Chlorine and minerals. Is. There are minerals in that water. Sure. Uh-huh. It's not that it's devoid of everything. There's but, lead. Uh, and, uh... <laughs> yeah, right. You get those kind of minerals. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, no, no, I, I believe that. And, uh, you know, I just – I this this topic comes at the perfect time because it is, it is becoming the warm summer months. I had my first – what I would call my first real summer long run this past weekend – uh, you know, first time it was like very hot out where you were just like sweating before you even got started kind of thing. Um, and, uh, did a, an awesome long run, but only brought one bottle, finished it halfway through the run. And, um, and by the time I got back to the car, I was, I was definitely dehydrated. Uh, you know, like it was just super thirsty. I had water in the car, drank that water, but then just the rest of the day, kind of ruined the rest of the day. I had a headache. It just didn't feel great because I just knew I, like I was really struggling to keep, to like make up for all that lack of, of fluid. And then also didn't have any sort of electrolyte mix on me or something like that. So, you know, it's just, it, hydration matters. It really does. Yes, it does. Matters for, uh, for a lot of things. I try to, I, I don't know, I'm just recently, when I get up in the morning, I'm much more focused now on, on hydrating first and foremost. And uh, I don't know, just part of a new, just part of a new outlook. I think starting to prioritize wellness over uh, over just cranking out workouts. Good, I like it. Yes. All right. <laughs> All uh, right. So, should we get to it? Yeah. Why don't we? Uh, actually, you know, before we get to the episode, why don't we pause for a second to thank our sponsors? This episode is brought to you by Trade Coffee. I don't know about you, Matt, but I have been drinking what is essentially the same cup of coffee for the past several years. Rarely did I explore new types of coffee or new roasters until Trade came into our life here on the podcast. And uh, they use this quiz to match you with the perfect coffee for your preferences and brewing style. Then they ship you different bags to explore. My latest shipment from Trade Coffee came in and it was... Amazing. I was a bright medium roast coffee from Blueprint Coffee, and I uh, I would have never discovered them or you know any of the other ones I've gotten without trade. Actually, that was my last trade, and that was a little while ago. I went back and bought, um, went back to my old brewer and and got my standard roast, and I was just immediately disappointed. And uh, and so, you know, I, need, I really need to re up my my trade. Yeah, trade, trade membership. Right now, Trade is offering new subscribers a total of $30 off your first order plus free shipping when you go to drinktrade.com slash no meat. That's more than 40 cups of coffee for free. Get started by taking their quiz at drinktrade.com slash no meat and let Trade find you a coffee you'll love. That's drinktrade.com slash no meat for $30 off. 
This episode is also brought to you by our brand new Omega Complex. Since my family and I went plant-based over a decade ago, there's been one class of nutrients that has continually given me and us pause. Mostly me. Not, the kids don't really stay up too late thinking about <laughs> this like I do. Uh, it's not protein. It's not B12. Those are very easily solvable problems, if you can even call them that. What it is is the omega-3 fatty acids, more specifically DHA and EPA, which are critical for brain health and development, especially in kids. So even though they're not worrying about it, I as the parent am, uh, but it's also important for adults and not just uh, not just brain health, but heart health, cell and blood health, and so much more. The problem is DHA and EPA are not really found in any plant-based foods, at least not the kind that, that my family eats. Like, I don't know. We don't we don't snack on algae too much. Do you? No, we, we, we do not snack too much on algae, although we do love sushi. <laughs> yeah, we do too. Not the same as algae. <laughs> You're right, but and, seaweed. And it's, and it's vegan sushi, so there's no fish, and the fish are what, what gets right. people the algae, so... When you're not eating fish, you're not getting too much DHA and EPA. Unless you're taking a good product like Complement's brand new Omega Complex. It's a powerful blend of DHA, EPA, ALA, and SDA omega-3 fatty acids to help you and me stop worrying about DHA and EPA. Altogether, it has more than 900 milligrams of omegas in a flexible liquid formula designed for the entire family. The best part, it actually tastes great. No fishy taste or weird algae flavor. This is huge, Matt. If you uh, if you've ever had an DHA EPA supplement, and I know that you have, they often taste a little fishy, and uh, that is not very attractive. So the fact that this one tastes great is I don't know. It's just, it goes down easy. It's wonderful. Yeah, absolutely. That fishy taste is a uh, is. I mean, if I if I ate fish oil, that would be something that I hated. I mean, it's a it's a even for omnivores, the fishy taste of fish oil is mm-hmm. a thing they got to get rid of. So um, to to be able to get it from an algae source that doesn't have a fishy taste uh, is uh, is a breakthrough. Breakthrough new product, Doug, that will change the world. <laughs> For the next five days, we're running a special offer on Omega Complex where you can save 20% when you order today. Just go to nomadathlete.com slash omega-complex. That's nomadathlete.com slash omega-complex and get lots and lots of omega-3s. In fact, I'm actually going to take this in addition to compliment, Doug. Oh, I am too. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, I mean, Omega is one of those things that it's uh, not, not that you couldn't possibly get too many Omegas, but uh, very, very many plant-based eaters are not getting enough in my opinion so um, i'm pretty pumped that we have this now all right with that let's get to the interview good morning meredith thank you so much for joining us and welcome to no meat athlete radio i'm so excited for this conversation because it touches on topics near and dear to my heart um, which we'll get into what those are but first to introduce you to uh, our community listening um, Meredith Cass, you're the founder and CEO of Nix, which is a um, relatively new consumer health data startup. So already folks can start to get a sense for, for those topics near and dear to my heart, health data and the quantification of self. And you have an awesome new product, which I will let you talk a little bit more about since you're the expert, but, but in effect, uh, a sensor that can um, uh, measure sweat and the composition of sweat. So for athletes, soldiers, you know, uh, workers who are maybe out in the hot sun, it's really important to understand fluid loss, electrolyte loss, you know, the, uh, like I say, the composition of that, that bodily fluid. So we're going to get into all of that, um, and the science behind it, of course, and how we can all do better to hydrate smarter, um, but obviously, I'll, I'll just quickly sum up your background and, and tell me if I've missed anything. But um, you are a, a graduate of Harvard, 
Um, and this business actually spun out of some research you were doing there. But in a meandering way, you've, you've also been involved in a lot of different consumer technology businesses and investment funds, and I think even the Consumer Technology Association. Um, but even more near and dear to my heart, perhaps, you're a marathoner. And you're going to have to explain to me, because I saw somewhere um, that you have run all uh, of the world major marathons. I don't know what the world major marathons are. A bunch of our <laughs> listeners are probably thinking he's such a neophyte when it comes to this stuff. So you're going to have to maybe start there. Um, but I'm really excited to get into all this. And, and thank you so much for spending a little bit of your time with us this morning. No, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, I know you just you just completely nailed it. I sort of think about my my career history at this um, intersection, maybe between venture capital and venture creation, and all very much focused on health and biometric data. Um, and then, you know, in my personal time, um, I was a, a basketball player, played through college, and then turned to running. Um, probably not even until my thirties. And, uh, and got pretty into it, as most of us type A people uh, can sometimes cling to endurance sports. And uh, I've run, I think at this point, nine marathons. Um, and the six world majors are actually a, a series, it's almost think like the masters in golf. Um, so it really is more defined for elite athletes, which is decidedly not myself. But um, it's three major marathons in the U.S., Boston, New York, and Chicago, and three international marathons, London, Berlin, and Tokyo, and they're looking at adding a seventh, um, I believe, in Singapore. So um, it's become a little bit of a quest for endurance athletes to run all the world major marathons. That is awesome, and I love those things. There's a great documentary on uh, Netflix that people keep telling me to watch and I haven't yet. And it's a guy who like, I, I'm just going to butcher the premise, but it's like all seven of the uh, uh, highest peaks in the world. And he did it in like seven days or something. Oh, it's just crazy. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah. how did you even get from the Himalayas to, to K2 in Africa <laughs> yeah. to have enough time to climb it that same yeah. day or whatever, you know, like. And somehow and again, sleep in between. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, or not knowing, you know, given these stories, it's just so crazy. But, but yeah, like I say, I, I'm, I'm probably over exaggerating or under exaggerating. Either way, I don't know what I'm talking about, but I really want to watch and I love all of those things. You know, obviously, Rich Roll, you know, made famous for doing the same thing. I think it was like five triathlons in five days and all like five of yeah. the Hawaiian Islands or whatever. And, and, you know, anytime, anytime you can, you know, check one of those boxes off. It's, it's so cool. So, Very um, cool. yeah, yeah. Well, <clears throat> congratulations on that, but Thank maybe you. we can go, uh, you know, back to your, your, your history, uh, or back in your history a little bit more and, and uh, well, I'm, I'm tempted to start two different places, but I'll ask the, the easy question first, I guess. Basketball is very different than, than marathons, right? It's very. a, it's a sprint sport. Um, short explosive movements as opposed to like just don't stop running (laughs) you know persist as long as possible so how how, what what was that transition like and you know changing your training and everything else to compete at high levels in both um, I'm just curious what drove that transition 
Um, you know, it's a great question and because you're right. There's so completely different mindsets where basketball is so intense and short bursts and sprint based and very hyper competitive and, and endurance sports can be, but it's a very, it's a very sort of self-competitive um, sport where you're not necessarily racing against the person next to you. Uh, you know, some people are certainly, but not, not where I sit in the pack. I'm not a podium chaser. So I, I, I wish I were, I wish I were that talented, but um, no, I'm a, I'm a pretty middle of the pack runner. So honestly, it's something I still struggle with even now, you know, many years after I picked up running is the pacing element, um, especially when you're talking about full marathon distance. I mean, that's, you think about like everything that you do, there's sort of the old adage, everything you do in the first five miles has everything to do with how you feel in the last five miles, um, which is so very true. Um, and I guess relates to hydration too. We'll come back around to that, but, um, yeah, pacing is brutal. How do you not go out too quickly? How do you not just, you know, when your heart and your head want to sprint because that's how you're built, but you can't let your legs do it. It's really hard. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I think we've all been there. I remember my, my, uh, endurance sport of choice these days is cycling. So I have to translate everything to that, but certainly as I was trying for, you know, my first hundred mile rides, uh, you know, it was, well, to say, to say the least, um, I learned the hard way about pacing. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I think we've all been there. Yeah. Um, You got to test those limits to know where they are. (laughs) Um, So, so with that in mind um, and and to make a little bit of a a transition to uh, what are those limits and how do you maybe persist longer using nutrition and, and thinking about good hydration? I'm, I'm curious if you can share um, any wisdom on that front, but as a way to get there, uh, where, where did your interest in technology and biometrics and health data, where, where did that come from? I mean, at their earliest stages, my interest in healthcare really broadly started, I mean, way back in high school. And I, I won't bore you with those earliest parts of the story, but my family works in healthcare. Um, it's a space that was always very interesting to me. It was a space where, Um, I just felt the impact that even somebody who's sort of a a junior starting out person can at least see the mission that they're on or the the disease state that they're focused on or whatever the case may be for the organization that they work for. And it was just an industry that really drew me. Um, It's also an incredibly complex industry, as I learned, as I sort of really got into the um, sort of depths of my career, um, just trying to figure out how to satisfy all these different stakeholders in the healthcare industry. It's, you know, probably don't want to take this, uh, this session in, in this tangential direction, but, you know, it's no mystery to the general public that the healthcare system in the U S is an absolute nightmare. Um, and it has everything to do with, you know, how it's structured at its most basic levels. So that, you know, that sort of, level of complicated problem was intriguing to me and figuring out sort of how do you, especially in the commercialization segment, I was always sort of fascinated on the business side of healthcare. How do you navigate all of those different challenges and hopefully come out with a solution in the form of a finished product of some kind um, that has sort of satisfied all the various stakeholders from the patient to the doctor, to the reimbursement payer, um, to the FDA, to, you know, you name it. 
um, that's navigated all of those obstacles and kind of come out on the other side successful. And I think that's maybe just a, a part of my personality. I studied math and physics in college and um, I've always sort of been analytical and, and seeking the quote unquote right solution um, for things. So all of that really drove my interest in healthcare early on. Um, you know, early on also did sort of the, the typical kind of trial and error of where I did and didn't want to be within the healthcare system. I figured out the lab bench wasn't for me. I figured out, you know, sort of maybe marketing wasn't for me. And um, through various processes, landed at Harvard Business School and got just really excited about venture capital in its most pure form in my mind was about commercializing really early stage technologies with incredible potential and helping those technologies and the people who invented them on how to navigate all of, you know, all those obstacles we were just talking about. Um, so that was really the path my, my career kind of took um, it, through various, you know, seats in venture capital. And I got really lucky to work with a bunch of the venture funds in the sort of Boston and New York area, which we're a little more conservative than the venture industry in, in other parts of the country. And so one of the strategies they came up with, um, which I've always found really fascinating, was this kind of venture creation model. So if you incubate a company, um, you know, within your portfolio as an investor, you have the opportunity to be formative in its, you know, strategy and in its team building. And then if it, you know, pretty much everything that that sort of forms the foundation for that company. And so in that way, it became like a risk mitigation strategy for these firms um, in the Northeast. So I love that. I, I spent a lot of time with a few different firms over several years in that capacity. And then I got wooed over to Children's Hospital in Boston, um, where they had their own fund that was self-funded. So no limited partners to, to sort of drive where the, you know, return on investment was going to come from. Um, it can be more sort of uh, mission driven or philosophical um, as opposed to just purely financial bottom line. So that was really intriguing to me. Um, and many people don't realize this, but Children's Hospital is actually part of the Harvard medical system and they do research that extends well beyond pediatric based research. And I mention all this because this was sort of me coming to the end of my my venture career, my investment career, but always very sort of excited about early stage technologies and the commercialization of them, always in very sort of entrepreneurial type um, functions. And it was while I was at Children's Hospital that I started running marathons with their charity team. And coincidentally was working with one of these technologies that we had funded, um, which was a hydration sensor invented by one of the emergency room docs. Um, while I was training for my very first marathon and struggling with hydration in particular pacing and, you know, some other elements as well, but really with hydration. Um, and I, I recall so distinctly, I was training for the New York marathon, which for any runners out there know is a fall marathon. It's the first Sunday in, um, in, uh, November every year. So you're typically training through the summer and in Boston, that's, you know, maybe not compared to other places in the country, but that's a, a pretty hot and humid prospect, and just really struggling week after week with trying to dial in my hydration. And that, you know, those, those two parts of the equation kind of clicked of 
this, this technology that we were thinking about for the emergency room, like literally diagnosing, or I should say quantifying levels of dehydration in infants coming into the emergency room in children's and marrying that with what I was observing directly in my own personal life of having a hard time managing hydration while training for a marathon. So that's really kind of where those, uh, those elements yeah. come together for next. Awesome. Well, <clears throat> there's a lot there that we could um, pull on. And just because it's a, a topic so so that, that I'm so passionate about, and I know that our community listening is uh, in agreement with you that our mainstream medical uh, system is broken. You, you said it, it comes down to, I think, the, the basic premise or the basic structure of the healthcare system. I'm just curious, um, very briefly, because I, I really want to make sure we have plenty of time to get into, you know, nutrition science and wearable technology and all these other areas that, that you are an expert in. Um, but <clears throat> as it relates to, like I say, the, the, that healthcare, healthcare comment you made, i just curious what, uh, what you mean by that? Or what, what single structural defect would you point to? Oh gosh, there's so many. I don't know if I could isolate one, but I think um, at the very core, just the fundamental um, component of who pays for healthcare and who reimburses the costs has created a dysfunction in how healthcare decisions get made. So it was really sort of a, if I remember correctly, there's like a whole history behind sort of the, the advent of healthcare as an employer-sponsored benefit. Uh, because it was, you know, sort of industry that kind of realized, well, if, if my employees aren't well, then they can't come to work and be productive. And so it was it was actually this the same way that most of us still get our health insurance through our employer. Um, that is not the case in many other countries. In many other countries, the government pays for health care. So what was sort of interesting is, you know, it just gave birth to this privatization of reimbursement um, in the healthcare system. And skipping ahead a few steps deliberately for the, the sake of brevity, what that ends up meaning is that we get these um, clinical decisions that are being made that are completely dissociated from the cost associated with them. And so we'll get, I don't know if anybody has ever like, you know, suspected they broke an ankle and they go to get an x-ray. And by the time you go get referred to the orthopedist, um, because there was a fracture, they take another x-ray because it's in a different system and it's not in your medical chart. And so even right there, I mean, an x-ray by all accounts is a relatively inexpensive cost um, compared to some other things in the world of healthcare. But, you know, there's sort of like that duplicity of, of procedures and, and processes um, is just one example of just how wasteful um, our healthcare system can be in terms of, you know, again, duplic duplicative um, efforts and, and excess cost. So, I mean, that's that's one simple example. I think the second one that goes to that same sort of cost of healthcare type problem is this concept that it's been set up, um, again, stemming from the same employer-based sponsored healthcare system, is that in this country, we receive care when we're sick. So I sort of jokingly usually refer to it as sort of sick care, not healthcare. Um, because you're pretty much only intervening when something has gone wrong. And unfortunately, that means there's not nearly the same focus on this sort of continuous, consistent, day-to-day, -day, repetitive, preventive healthcare or well care, 
which I think we're trying as a society to make a better shift to that. But but in previous times, and, and certainly for a lot of the country, this is still very much with us, is this concept of, you know, not really paying attention on a day-to-day basis of like how we treat our bodies and what we put in it, both food and beverage-wise, but also you know, air quality and, you know, movement and all of these other things. And so these are what we often refer to as these lifestyle diseases of diabetes and obesity and, and heart disease and, and all these chronic diseases that um, unfortunately do come from this whole underlying problem of treating these sort of episodes of sick care instead of emphasizing proactive health care. Well, I uh, wouldn't disagree with any of that. And uh, I know <laughs> it aligns closely with the whole philosophy that we uh, espouse um, yeah. here at No Meat Athlete. Uh, yeah. you know, what's the saying? Prevention, uh, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure or vice yeah, versa? Yeah, something like yeah. that. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. But I think this is like the perfect transition in certain ways to to the vision for next, which is a lot loftier than you know one might think just looking at our initial commercial case, which we'll get into, but it, it really is about supplying the data to make those better choices, whatever that, whatever that behavior or that choice may be. Obviously, we're we're thinking about hydration in the initial case, but but as a platform technology, we're thinking about all instances where there is a simple device that's diagnostic in nature. And I want to be careful about the words we use because we're we're not an FDA regulated product. And for commercialization reasons, we want to try to avoid that. Um, but it's all about, you know, supporting those day-to-day proactive health-based choices with data to not only inform, but also reinforce those choices and those behaviors, in my opinion. Hundred percent. I think you can, you know, there's there's probably a great saying for this too, but, but I don't have it off offhand. Uh, so I'll just I'll make something up as I go, which is, you know, the the amount of motivation and clarity that can come from putting numbers to health, you know, and and yeah. trying to just actively engage in your health journey, you know, whether or not it's because you're you're trying to outperform yesterday and you're training for a marathon and that's really important to understand your hydration or you know anything that you can learn from biomarkers in your blood or urine or saliva or hair you know all of which i uh enjoy looking at (laughs) um you know you just learn so much more and like i say it also has such an impact on your motivation because um i just went through I should say I am going through currently uh, an interesting journey that I will um, blog about and and so I won't uh, spend too much time on it today because it's ongoing, but um, we are all dealing with things that are good and bad in in our biomarkers. And by actively engaging in that process and tweaking our inputs, whether it be whole foods or supplementation or a different approach to hydration, and then, you know, engaging like i say actively in that that feedback loop where we can see if our intervention is working you know um it is like it's it's so motivating to me and and i get that you know some people are different and 
they prefer not to open the black box, the Pandora's box of health, because <laughs> yeah. it can be really scary and, yeah. and it can be yeah. demotivating. And so anyway, I'll, I'll, I'll stop there. And because um, I do want to get into that philosophy, uh, if you will, the, um, the question about can, can too much data be a bad thing? Can, yeah. can trying to quantify yourself in this, this future that we're all heading towards, yeah. you know, I'm not very interested in the metaverse. I'm, I'm much more interested in the, you know, tangible uh, universe. Um, yeah. But nonetheless, like we are going towards this kind of cyborg future, like, Right now, I have three different devices on, right? Um, <laughs> and uh, and so, you know, triangulating those things, and it's just, it's really interesting to me. So yeah. um, let's get back to your hydration journey and and maybe just to, to bring it down to the, the practical level. Um, you know, I think that a lot of times we focus on macronutrients, um, like, am I getting enough? protein, right? Like, mm -hmm. should I have this sort of ratio? Let's talk about marathoners for this conversation. Mm -hmm. You know, should I, should I have a, you know, ratio of protein, fat and carbohydrates that look like this or like that, or, you know, what's the pre-race uh, meal look like, or the day before the race, you know? Um, yeah. And I think much, much less do we think about micronutrients or specifically about electrolytes and you know, that, that combination of potassium and, and uh, you know, e even metals that we don't think about like copper and how that affects, you know, the absorption of zinc, you know, and all of those things have to be, you know, in balance for you yeah. to feel good and to push your body to these extreme lengths in a marathon. So where, where did that, well, you mentioned that that journey started in you know a children's hospital, but I guess uh, more tangibly, help help us understand, you know, what what do we know so far about hydration science and and how to optimize, and then you can bring that into sort of the the state of technology today, and 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 if someone doesn't have access to your sensor yet, um, you know, what can we do to to kind of understand it and try to optimize those things today. Yeah. And to answer that first question is sort of, what do we know about the physiology first and foremost? We know a shocking amount and we've known it for decades. Um, I, I often get teased with some of our, our slides and our references and our pitch decks. There's for, for any of your folks that are sort of in the medical field at all, there's a, there's a convention of citing um, published sources that really were sort of the seminal work of a certain concept that really kind of introduced it. And so it's, it's almost about paying homage to that first uh, person who discovered or invented or, or, you know, kind of culminated a theory. Um, so that's really the convention. And so the irony is that when we, when we talk about the impact that dehydration or an electrolyte imbalance can have, the seminal sources are decades old. <laughs> so it's, you know, people are like, why are some of your sources from the 1980s? And my answer is because we, we've known about the impact on performance, both um, sort of endurance-based performance, strength-based performance, um, cognitive performance, mood. We've known about the impacts of dehydration for decades. What's really fascinating is there's just never been anything we could do about it because we can't measure it in, in a meaningful way. 
So the, the, the methods that folks have been using, and when I think about hydration, um, I'm thinking specifically about fluid losses via sweat in particular and electrolyte losses in that sweat. And so the, the current methods um, from a scientific perspective are um, pretty straightforward. It's, you know, for fluid losses and to, to calculate sweat rate, I mean, you, you literally do a nude body mass, um, typically in private, you know, let somebody weigh themselves before and after a specific workout and calculate the, the weight and then the volume of fluid that was lost in that time period. And so by doing that, you can calculate a sweat rate for that, for that specific individual. By measuring the electrolytes in that sweat, you can also find the electrolyte loss rate. And so from a lab-based perspective, these are relatively straightforward to measure, but you can certainly imagine that's not something people do out in the fields, right? You're not going to stop in the middle of a workout or a race to strip naked somewhere and, and weigh yourself and figure out what you've lost. So the Perhaps we that, should. I mean, well, maybe be, we that, should. That would <laughs> add a real fun dimension to your next right? marathon. A whole new dimension of entertainment. Um, so the methods that folks are using in the field, and I think the running example is just, you know, a, a pretty accessible and easy one. So we can just keep running with that, although it's similar in any other physical activity, um, is thirst. I mean, that's pretty much what we're all using is this concept of thirst. Surprisingly, there is now a very good body of literature over the last 10 years or so um, actually coming out of the Soldier Research Center here in Massachusetts, just west of Boston. Um, really demonstrating very clearly that thirst is going to prompt you to replenish about half the fluids that you've lost. So the key in that becomes what that deficit is as far as, you know, how it quantifies. So if you've only lost 10 ounces of fluids and thirst is prompting you to replenish about five of those ounces, that five ounce deficit is not that meaningful. And the way the convention of how that's measured is that you basically um, look at a percentage of the body mass lost in water. So quick detour, if you're a 150 pound person, you lose one and a half pounds of sweat, um, which, you know, you can do the math pretty quickly on that. Um, then you're determined to be 1% dehydrated, which is pretty mild. You're going to start to feel symptoms somewhere between two and 3%. At that point, your performance is already impaired. Um, that's considered mild dehydration. Moderate's kind of in this four to 6% range where you're going to start to feel really crummy. You may be nauseous. Um, you're definitely feeling sluggish. You've lost about 50, uh, sorry, 30 or so percent of your performance at that point. And then severe dehydration is occurring in sort of the seven to nine, maybe 10% range. And that's pretty severe. I mean, there's definitely nausea and vomiting. There's probably cramping. There may be loss of consciousness depending on some other symptoms. And then death occurs between 12 and 15%. So that's kind of the, how we think about dehydration as a scale. So coming back to this concept of thirst, if you're only down, you know, five ounces, that's going to be a very, very small percent of your body mass. That's not going to, you're not going to get in sort of the risk of death, but if you're an endurance athlete and you're out on the roads for an hour or two or three, or sometimes seven, eight, nine, if you're an ultra endurance athlete, if you're, if you're a super ultra endurance athlete, sometimes you're out there for 20 hours if you're only replenishing half of those fluids over a longer period of time, that can become very, very serious. 
And that's really kind of where this comes into play. You know, there are other methods we use in lab with, you know, urine samples and things like that. Obviously, you're not going to be doing that out in the field. Urine color is a really popular one, which always makes me laugh, certainly because it's impractical when you're anywhere other than a lab, but also because um, I always use this very crude example. If you're out drinking with your friends, you're urinating probably a lot and it's probably clear, but it's not because you're well hydrated. So the color of our urine is often a better indicator of what the kidneys are doing and the state that the kidneys are in versus the level of systemic, you know, hydration status throughout the whole body. So really when it comes down to it, um, the one other factor is, you know, especially in the endurance space is a lot of trial and error. And, you know, you might try drinking a little more, drinking a little less, see how you feel. Did you perform better? Did you feel better? Um, the challenging part with that is that even for every single individual, I think we're all kind of aware that, you know, human A and human B might sweat differently from one another. But what's maybe less intuitive is that one individual can sweat very, very differently on day one versus day two. And it's usually based on the environment, but it's also based on the intensity of that workout what clothing or gear they might've been wearing. Um, and then other physiological factors, if they were dehydrated when they started, if they didn't sleep well, there's a whole range of factors that we can't effectively compile into a mental trial and error model. So all of that, in my opinion, uh, and, and this is sort of how we position our, our technologies, like that basically amounts to guessing. Every single time you go out there, you're basically guessing at what your fluid and electrolyte needs are going to be. Yeah, it sounds like it. <laughs> Just, well, yeah. and and it leads perfectly to why your technology is uh, going to revolutionize training and why there's such a need for it. But but just to stay on that previous uh, line of thinking first, and then maybe we can bridge into what can we learn about technology and how long is it going to take for you to create this sensor, or I should say, commercialize this sensor because that's just a curiosity again i'm yeah currently uh veiled in in devices um garmin aura whoops got a posture thing on to four four different things stuck to me at the moment yeah. um, <laughs> um but uh you mentioned color of your urine being in a better indicator of your kidneys and not your level of hydration uh, just curious to the extent you can um, expand on that. I, I'd, I'd love to learn more. Yeah, absolutely. So, and, and they are interrelated. So they're, you know, your, your kidney function and your hydration are not completely dissociated from one another, but um, it comes back to, you had questions earlier about sort of the critical balance of electrolytes. So every cell in our body has a, I'll try not to get too dorky about this, but every cell in our body has this ion channel that's balancing the sodium and potassium balance inside the cell and outside of the cell. And it basically, it, it has to do with how well that cell is going to function. So sodium in particular, because it's the, the dominant electrolyte in our sweat, it comprises about 50% of the electrolytes in our sweat. When there is critical sodium loss, um, that's called hyponatremia. And the, the level of sodium in your blood falls below a critical level. Those cells don't function as well you're not getting the same sodium potassium pumping across that cell membrane. 
And so what ends up happening in the critical organs, the sort of the, what we call the vital organs, the heart, the lungs, the brain, the kidneys, the liver, um, is that those, um, there can be cell damage within those, those vital organs. So, um, so that electrolyte balance is absolutely critical um, and, and understanding how to replenish those is really critical. There's this phenomena in endurance sports where if you are replenishing only with water, clearly you're not sweating out water, you are losing electrolytes. If you're only replenishing those fluids with water, you can induce that same state of hyponatremia where you've got this critically low um, level of, of sodium. It's more rare than dehydration is sometimes referred to as overhydration. Um, it's more rare, but it's far more serious and it's, it can be deadly um, a lot more quickly, uh, which again is, is something you definitely want to avoid. I forget what year it was, but there was a death at the Boston marathon from hyponatremia. Um, so this is kind of that, you know, that, that really critical, understanding of the data, not just for performance, but, but for safety as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, have you, well, uh, I'm just curious to the extent you can get into it. Um, so in terms of practical advice for those of us who, you know, obviously there's a spectrum of fluid and electrolyte and, and other loss uh, during a, an intense workout or for someone like me who who really enjoys um the sauna right uh yeah. other uh longevity oriented you know gotta sweat out the heavy metals somehow uh practices um you know sometimes i'll put a little bit of uh salt um if i don't have a a uh, a bag of our new hydrate product at hand um mm -hmm. or in the past they used the noon tablets and and honestly you know um my exposure to this science has only just begun as we uh partnered with some folks who who helped us develop our new hydrate product that um is designed to replicate those those four critical um electrolytes that the composition similar to sweat mm -hmm. um and then just has a couple other sort of transport molecules, if you will. Uh, I don't think that's a, a, a technical term, um, but for instance, a little bit of glucose will help the uptake from yeah. your small intestine. So, you know, if people have a bag of complement hydrate uh, near them, um, that's great. It, I assume, uh, but I have not validated uh, that, that noon and who knows, maybe even emergency and all these other brands, you know, they're, they're putting similar um, products together. And, and again, I, I won't comment on whether or not theirs is as good or, or better or worse than ours. Um, <laughs> but, but I'm curious. Uh, so, so the idea, you know, I've once read that, um, you know, just drinking straight water, you know, almost as if it passes through your body because it doesn't have, um, you know, these other elements to, to help with absorption. Yeah. Um, and that's never really rung true to me, even though I'm out here saying, you know, we can make water better and the science would surely suggest that. But on the other hand, if, if you're, you know, on a deserted island, like you can certainly survive on a, on a water fast, right? Like I think the yeah. longest medically documented water fast is, you know, um, an exceptionally long period of time. I don't remember if it's 
six months or maybe it's even longer, like over a year. Um, but obviously that person was morbidly obese and his body was surviving by consuming its own fat. Um, and, and right. he was maintaining it with water. He, he may have been on some other, you know, electrolyte IV solution. I, again, I, I, I shouldn't be commenting cause I don't know those details, but, but again, you know, you can survive with just water for a long period of time that would suggest to me that the water will be absorbed eventually or some Absolutely. amount at least. So Absolutely. I guess that's what, so, so there's a few different questions or comments in there. Feel free to take it either, either way. But I guess if I had to distill it, it's my assumption is that drinking plain, you know, pure water, uh, you know, you're, you're certainly going to absorb that into your vascular system you're you're certainly going to get a, a level of hydration into your cells right but but mm -hmm. we can is the idea that we can do better by making sure to to create the right combination of these different components and add that to the water i mean i think when we're thinking about you know beverages especially in the context of sport and i know you're talking about applications broader than that it's about speed. It's about, it's about gastric absorption speed. So, you know, can you, can you become sort of more quickly rehydrated if you include some carbohydrates, some electrolytes, um, totally with you, the, the, the data basically suggests absolutely you'll get faster absorption rates. But again, I think that's about, I think that's about, um, replenishing of hydration in those active states where the rate of loss of fluids is a lot higher. So, you know, without whatever physical exertion is causing sweating, if you're somebody that's sitting on a deserted Island and you're doing a water fast or you're, you know, somewhere else where you don't have access to food, um, you know, that may look very different. And, and that, to be totally honest, that mechanism of action, I'm not an expert. And I would imagine while your body is breaking down fats, there are also essential, you know, molecules and electrolytes and enzymes and, and all sorts of things that are getting released as those fat cells are breaking down, um, that sort of help you retain that critical balance. But I, I certainly can't speak to that professionally. Um, you know, earlier I stopped just short of, of perhaps fully answering your question about the kidney function where, um, especially there, I mean, there's a lot of things that happen when you're, when you're running and when you're exerting yourself, but if you do get to a point where you're drinking fluids and you're not, um, taking in electrolytes, there are other hormones and, and receptors, some of which are in the pituitary in the brain, which are sensing what that sodium level is. And if it becomes unbalanced, the kidneys then get a set a, a signal to either release fluid and retain electrolytes or to retain fluid altogether. And in that way, they're trying to keep this concentration. That's really what it's about is the concentration of the sodium in particular in the blood. Um, you can, again, if, if it's too dilute and you need the sodium levels to be higher, the kidneys will be signaled to let fluid through that has fewer electrolytes in it. And that's when you're going to have clearer um, urine. And then, you know, that can be signaled the opposite as well. If you're, if you're dehydrated, but your electrolytes are in check, um, what you may find is that you're going to release um, urine less frequently. And then in many cases, it will be more concentrated and it will be darker, but you know, it's, there are so many 
for everything that we do know about sort of the physiology of, of hydration and thermoregulation, I mean, it's, there's so many detailed nuances, especially about signaling between, you know, like this particular pathway of how the brain signals the kidneys on what to do um, that, you know, I think is, is still being researched and understood, which is fascinating. Yeah, no, it's like every, every time you start learning about the details, uh, it's easy to become overwhelmed and to really feel like there's, there's never a point where you can master it all. Right. Um, <laughs> that's why it's so fun to talk to experts like you to, to give us more and more of, uh, that, that nuance and that understanding. Um, yeah. I want to uh, broaden the conversation though, um, before we run out of time uh, and and get your sense, you know, I think we are, um, well, you've made some interesting comments on uh, when we've talked offline um, about the, the limitations of looking at uh, bio, biomarkers, uh, I guess, without going subcutaneous. Um, so, so we, uh, like I said, I've got Aura, Whoop, Garmin, right? Um, everyone is uh, excited about, you know, uh, respiration and heart rate. And then obviously the, the, uh, the data that can lead to interesting conclusions around HRV, which mm-hmm. I'm, uh, you know, heart rate variability, I'm a huge fan of that. Um, although I certainly think that there are limitations to driving any sort of insights or, or real conclusions from something yeah. like that. Yeah. Um, so I'm curious, what do you see on the horizon? What, what are your thoughts on those technologies, you know, or, and, and, you know, I'll just share briefly. My, my hope is that we'll all have some sort of embedded lab uh, uh under our skins or, or maybe we'll just you know take out the uh um uh spleen uh since you know a lot of people say it's not very useful anyway <laughs> yeah put put in a nice little you know lab um like therano style tiny little blood uh you know so that we can get those real-time data <laughs> but um no that's hopefully more one, accurate one... than theranos yeah <laughs> Fair, fair, but um, no, you know, but that's where we're heading, right? It's Absolutely. we're heading into yeah. this cyborg future of real time. So. Um, I do too. So yeah, love to hear your thoughts on on where we're going and what are the limitations of technology today, and maybe what are the opportunities. It's so funny that you're asking this because I literally did a, a similar conversation earlier today with um, some folks within the Department of Defense that are thinking about biosensing and and their their utility and human performance and readiness. And, and so I was literally just thinking about this earlier today. So, I mean, I, when I think about what I would term products that are a little bit closer to what I would call wearables, these are products that are leveraging maybe things like GPS and accelerometry and um, optical bioimpedance. So for, for any of the listeners, the optical bioimpedance is what we call like any of your devices. And you're probably wearing three of them right now, Matt, about, um, that are shining light into the skin, usually in the red or the green spectrum, but shining light into the skin and then seeing how much of that signal is being impeded and, and is not being reflected back. Um, that's how we measure heart rate right now. It's certainly how we measure heart rate variability. It's how we, we measure a lot of other things. 
for somebody that comes from the healthcare field, that's not biometric data. It's really interesting data, but it's not biometric. It might be an interesting proxy for something that's truly biometric. But when we think about biometric data, we're thinking about specific electrochemical analytes that are positive or negative indicators for whatever it is you're trying to sense. And when I say specific, I mean they are they are unique and directly correlated to what it is you're trying to measure. Heart rate is one of these funny things where your heart rate is impacted by so many dozens of factors that it can sometimes be nearly impossible to understand why your heart rate has changed. It can change with activity. It can change with emotion. It can change with um, dehydration. It can change with stress. And so for you, for any company to, to put together an algorithm to say, this heart rate change is meaningful in XYZ you know, direction, you have to isolate every other possible factor for why that heart rate has changed. And then the same is true for heart rate variability and other derivations of, of that fact. So I'm grateful to companies that have built these biometric devices on these sorts of, uh, you know, these sorts of readings and have built, you know, the maturity of the data science around them. I'm grateful because they've elevated the story to the public consciousness, to this sort of this topic of national conversation about putting health data in consumers' hands. I think I'm 100% bought in to the philosophy going way back to the beginning of this conversation. But what I really crave is a wave of companies that can use true electrochemical biomarkers in tears, sweat, saliva, breast milk, urine, whatever the sample may be, to give a very specific health-based reading. And I see a lot of these metabolic health companies like Levels and Super Sapiens and, and Abbott now launching their new Lingo line that just gets me so excited because to me, that's true data. That's real stuff that we're pulling from the interstitial fluid or from wherever else. And we may not necessarily know what that data means just yet, but I think that's something when we think about biosensing in general, that's what gets me really excited is like, we've got to match what we can do technologically with what consumers actually care about. Because again, not to get too far up on the soapbox, we've got all of these innovations being funded by an industry, namely, you know, venture capital and other sources of capital that have to see success stories to stay involved. And I just, I worry about products that are putting out these esoteric metrics that nobody really knows what to do with, that aren't actionable, that aren't solving an actual problem. There's a sort of adage in venture capital of like, is your product a vitamin or is it a painkiller? You want your product to be a painkiller. You want your product to be, or your data to be something that people need, that they crave, that they're not going to just, you know, throw in a drawer after three months of wearing it. Um, because if that's not the case, funding will stop flowing to that space. And so I think this is a space that I'm keenly excited about. I'm, I'm curious where this goes with metabolic health, with all of these um, continuous glucose monitors being used in consumer settings. I think we've got a little ways to go before we know exactly what that data means and how to use it. But I think there's a whole wave of other products, again, predicated on these true electrochemical biomarkers right behind it. Um, and I, I dare to say that next might be one of them. Um, that are going to ride those coattails and really bring true problem-solving technologies to consumers on a day-to-day basis. Well, that uh, is an answer that went beyond my expectation. So, um, <laughs> can you tell I'm passionate about it? 
no so so am i like i say and uh um we can have a whole separate conversation about um continuous glucose monitors and and whatever is next on the horizon because i I know we're about out of time but um just out of curiosity for all those people out there like me wearing all these devices because i i you know kind of like we started the the conversation out you know having more power having more numbers um not necessarily because those numbers tell you uh, immutable truth not not necessarily because we even know the real essence of those numbers but instead because they provide a baseline and then they provide an over under uh, on a daily basis right mm-hmm. um and and so you can start uh, i know this because me and my partner matt frazier are both wearing um aura rings and we're talking about right. it right the the very fact that we're talking about our sleep and that we're talking about our uh hrv right not not to say that it wouldn't be better to get a daily blood test and and to be talking about the ways that you know our our diets are impacting those um really fundamental uh biomarkers but because uh, yeah. that would you know that's the future i agree with you and, and i'm i'm excited for that because i think the more power that we can put into consumers hands and But that's kind of my point. Wouldn't you nonetheless agree that it's less that a number like 80 matters, right? Um, Mm -hmm. It's more that if you're 80 every day, right? And then all of a sudden you're 79 every day and then you're 65 over the course of six months and and you're seeing that progress, right? And then, then, you know, you go out with your, your friends for a bachelorette party and you drink a bunch and the next day you wake up and your number is 90 and you're like ah you know this is why i don't do that because it's not good for my body because i know where my body's you know like would you agree that while we may not know you know the depth of of uh what these um uh, uh less invasive uh markers uh suggest um it's nonetheless better to have consumers engaged with and playing with those uh with those concepts right absolutely absolutely i mean data is better than no data full stop um and starting to see how your behavior impacts that data i mean that's exactly how you learn it's how you start creating patterns um i'm of the belief and i don't wear as many devices as you do although i certainly sampled um my fair share in this in this biosensing category is that the onus is on those companies to share that data with you in ways that you can make that pattern recognition and understand those correlations really easily. But yeah, I think, you know, there's absolutely value in that. You know, there are also some biomarkers and and hydration is one of them where um, there isn't necessarily a baseline and it is different every day. And so, you know, maybe that, like, for example, the, the pattern recognition that we aim for is that you can start to understand what your fluid losses and electrolyte losses look like in different environmental conditions. Um, because again, it's, it's about that pattern recognition, but yeah, I think, you know, whatever data it is that we are quantifying and, and looking at, and that's got us engaged. I think the key to the engagement is the meaning and the actionability behind it. Um, but I think all of that is a positive it's, you know, again, as an entrepreneur and a recovering venture capitalist, I think, you know, I, I like to keep an eye to 
are we building businesses and products and funding innovation that's going to be quote unquote successful? Because if you can't point to enough success stories, funding will stop flowing there. No, hundred percent. I think you have the, the right approach. Um, uh, Meredith, there are so many questions that I want to get into with you. We're, we're going to have to do a round two, perhaps when the NICS sensor becomes available to our community for the time being, I, I believe uh, it is on pre-sale now. People can fund um, the development of this uh, initial run. Um, where is the best place for people to go to learn more, to learn more about you and your work and, um, and any final parting words that you want to leave with our community. Um, yeah, thank you for that. We are in pre-order right now. Um, you can go to pre-order at nixbiosensors.com. Nix is spelled N-I-X. So pre-order at nixbiosensors.com. Um, it'll give a lot more information about exactly how our product works. Um, we are pretty focused right now on the endurance athlete. We certainly, anybody else that's excited to measure their sweat and, and see what's in there, we're, we're excited to have you, but you'll notice that is the messaging and the positioning is a little more focused to the endurance athlete, but, um, yeah, by all means, go check out what we're doing, leave us some thoughts and feedback and, um, you know, hopefully we're, we're supporting the, the never ending quest for this, um, you know, self-quantification effort. <laughs> well, we applaud your efforts and, uh, I am very, very excited to, to be supporting your work and I will be one of your first, uh, customers. So thank you again, Meredith, for, for spending some time with us and, uh, look forward to continue our conversation soon. Likewise. Thanks so much. It was great to chat with you.